Our Old Testament reading comes from Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Thank you, Herman. Well, we're talking about becoming like Jesus, and our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, and Paul writes, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, now we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might perceive and grasp a hold of your message to us this morning from Scripture and the truth, O oh God, of what you teach us and instruct us in this uh, walk that we uh, are on, to know Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to be conformed more and more into the likeness and image of God. We pray now that you would convict our hearts and convince us, O oh God, of the things you desire for us to know and to learn. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, a recent Barna study for Christian, uh, Arizona Christian University found that millennials have radically different beliefs about respect and faith and America than Christians of previous generations. And every one of you are thinking, no duh. <laughs> Tracy Munsell with Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center writes, America has undergone a tectonic worldview shift in the past 25 years, with only 6% of adults today possessing a biblical worldview compared to twice that, 12%, in the mid-1990s. And nowhere, of course, are the effects of this dramatic cultural change more evident than among millennials and the millennial generation, which is more radically different in worldview and beliefs and values than any other generation in American history, according to new research from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. The latest findings from the American Worldview Inventory for 2020 
show that millennials are breaking from traditional values at an unprecedented rate. Millennials are increasingly rejecting the Christian faith. Only 2% possess a biblical worldview and spurning the beliefs and practices of previous generations. ACU President Len Munsell said that these latest findings confirm his generation's deepest concerns about young Americans. We've always sensed, quote, that the culture has been pulling the next generation away from biblical values and truths many were raised with. This study is more confirmation and illustrates the necessity of preparing young Christians with a heart to transform their generation with biblical truth, end quote. The study finds that millennials are 28% less likely than boomers to treat other people the same way they want to be treated. The least tolerant generation by their own admission, millennials are twice as likely to say that the kind of people they always respect are those who hold the same religious and political views as they do, which means they are fiercely tribal. If you are not a part of their tribe, they do not respect you. The generation most committed to getting even with those who wrong them, they are 28 percentage points more likely than baby boomers to hold a vengeful point of view. Less than half as likely as other adults to say that life is sacred, and they are significantly less likely to believe in the existence of absolute moral truth, consider the Bible to be a reliable source of moral guidance, or pray during a typical week. We might ask, what has gone so wrong that we have failed to either model or effectively communicate God's truth to the next generation? Some of it, of course, is the fact that we're living in a broken world. But there are some factors we might pay close attention to. We know that the secularists won the culture war years ago. And I don't think it's because they have a more compelling vision of life than we do. They don't. Because if you sort of listen to secular people and their vision for the world, um, it's kind of hopeless and nihilistic. But there are some things that Christians should take inventory of. I think the previous generations of Christians have not allowed themselves to be truly scandalized by Christ and the gospel, which calls us to be radically different than the world. In other words, we may not have fully perceived and understood what Christ calls us to, that to truly make an impact the world is looking for something different from what they see around them. And they don't always see that in the church. I also think, secondly, that we may possibly have mistaken middle-class values for biblical holiness. They're not the same thing. And as I wrote this, I thought that someone might come up to me after church or send me an email saying, what did you mean by that? And I just wanna say, I'm not gonna tell you. 
you got to figure that out. Last week, we talked about what holiness is. We said that holiness is a matter of being and becoming. God sets us apart, sanctifies us. We're his holy people. We are his people. That's a matter of our being. We're his saints. Last week, we talked about that. And at the same time, we are called to make every effort and labor to grow into holy character. We're to live lives that imitate God, and God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, as the pattern. And holiness is every Christian's calling. It's not an option, but a requirement. And it's not easy. It's tough work, isn't it? But in some ways, we have only scratched the surface. We have sort of conceptualized holiness in the abstract, but we've not really talked about the how of holiness. And over the next few weeks, we will explore the habits of holiness. This is a six-part series. We may extend it based on the leading of the Lord. But I did not want to rush into, you know, how we should live just yet. I wanted to sort of help us conceptualize what holiness is, what it means, and how God thinks about it. But we will be moving, as we move forward, be talking about habits of holiness James Packer calls holiness a living out behaviorally of what God is working in us transformationally. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, which means that God is at work in us. We're not totally on our own trying to fight this battle. God is working in us. He is working in us through his indwelling spirit changing us into the likeness and image of his son for his glory. Now, I've heard people say that Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. Just raise your hand if you've heard people say that. Yeah. This is true, and this is not true. Christianity is not simply a list of do's and don'ts, but there are clear commands of things that we should do and things we shouldn't. But here's the deal. They only make sense, the do's and the don'ts, the commands, the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. They only make sense if we understand it all within the story, okay? Recently, Russell Moore said that even the Ten Commandments don't make sense apart from the story. They're part of the narrative of the biblical storyline. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And we are a part of that story. God who created the world, placed us in it as his image bearers to imitate him and be like him. And holiness is the outworking of that reality. We might say the indicatives drive the imperatives. The things that we are supposed to do and obey are driven by the reality of the story, who God is and the story he is writing about the world. 
And only when you understand the story can verses like 1 John 2.15 make any sense. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What you have then in the Christian worldview, you don't have in any other religion or moral system. You have a God that creates human existence and then, and then enters into human existence and models the life we're supposed to live. And by living that life, we actually become truly human. Which is to say that when we are not living out God's commands and pursuing holiness, we are not being the people God created human beings to be. Sinfulness is not a matter of being too humid, human, it's a matter of not being human enough. And it's interesting in scripture where you find people who abandon the pursuit of holiness and fully embrace wickedness are said to be bestial. They're like beasts. People who rebel against the moral purity and holiness and righteous character of God are not human, they're like animals. You think of Nebuchadnezzar, who God had given the realms and the kingdoms of the known world at that time, and he walks out on his portico and looks at his empire and says, look at what I have done. And immediately he is struck down and walks on all fours for seven years and grows his hair out and grows his fingernails out and is like an ox or an animal. He's not human for that period of time. And so when we rebel against the holy character of God and don't recognize that God has given us those commands to be more human, in some ways the image erodes in us. So when we talk about living a holy life, what do we, what do we really mean by that? Is it simply a matter of obedience? Well, James Packer talks about two pillars that hold up holiness. So if holiness is like an arch, it rests on two individual pillars. And those two pillars are spirituality and ethics. Spirituality and ethics. In his book, Rediscovering Holiness, he unpacks this by saying, number one, Spirituality is a part of holiness. It includes everything related to our fellowship with God, meditation and prayer and worship and the use of the means of grace, exercising faith and hope and love and seeking and serving God in all of one's relationships and giving God glory and thanks. In other words, it is not just about outward actions. It's about the things that we give the affection of our hearts to, right? Worshiping God, meditating on him, praying, seeking faith, hope, and love. That's spirituality, and holiness relies on this. The other side of the coin is ethics, and this does cover delineating, the delineation of God's commands his standards and his revealed will, the things that God wants us to do. It involves developing those character traits that constitute God's image in us, who were made to be his image bearers. 
But if you have only one or the other, your holiness becomes lopsided and corrupted. So holiness rests on spirituality and ethics, and if you take one away, you have a lopsided Christian life. You have a holiness that quickly is corrupted. Spirituality without ethics corrupts itself by becoming morally insensitive. It cares about God's presence while neglecting his law and his commands. Now, theologically, we call this antinomianism, and that's just a fancy word for saying against anti-nomos law, against the law of God, or moral lawlessness. So you can think of, you know, people who say something like, I'm spiritual but not religious, right? And most often that means of, I like the idea of relating to God on my own, but I don't need the church or the Bible to tell me how to do it, right? Or at the very least it means, I'll pick and choose what parts of the Bible I like. That's a kind of spirituality without ethics, or it's sort of like salad bar ethics. Well, I like this, I like what the Bible says about this, but I don't like what it says about that. And mostly it's because, well, I want to engage in that. Right? And this is sort of the current culture in America, this growing trend, and it's been growing for a, a long time now of spiritually, spiritual but not religious. Ethics, on the other hand, without spirituality, corrupts itself by becoming loveless, mechanical, formulistic, proud, unspiritual, and it can easily become self-righteous like the Pharisees. So this is ethics without spirituality. James Packer says, holiness is like an arch that rests on spirituality and ethics as its two pillars and crashes down the moment either pillar crumbles. We've seen a lot in our recent past or America's history of Christians having one without the other. Our pursuit of God can easily fall into one of these extremes if we're not careful to understand how to truly live holy. And it's important to understand what holiness is not. So number one, holiness is not rule-keeping without relationship. It is not rule-keeping without relationship. Holiness should be motivated out of love for God and others. There's a relationship aspect, right? It should be motivated by love. But for many Christians who pursue holiness, I'm afraid that it becomes a contest. Maybe you've seen this. It sort of intrigues someone as far as they can outdo their neighbor and boast that they are literally holier than thou. Anyone ever seen this in a in a church you belong to, someone who is very proud about the things they don't do and are quick to tell you every time you have a conversation what they don't do, right? Oh, we, we don't do that, right? And this is why so much of what passes for holiness is really legalistic hypocrisy. It's legalism. And holiness becomes hypocrisy when God-serving outward actions proceed from self-serving inward motives. 
In other words, it can look like you're being very religious and observant outwardly, but they come from, you know, self-seeking or self-serving motives. It's rule-keeping without relationship. It's not born out of love for God and for other people, but out of ego and religious pride, and we have to be very vigilant against this because we can easily fall into it. And when that happens, you have self-righteousness and moralism and judgmentalism. And look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In other words, it's good to practice righteousness. And people will see your righteousness, but don't do it so that you can be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. There is a current phenomenon on, you know, phenomena in social media where there's all these videos of people posting, you know, of themselves, you know, videos walking up to a homeless person and giving them food or money or clothes. And on the surface, it seems very touching. Just show of hands. Anyone seen videos like this? Yeah. And it appears kind, but it's totally self-serving. Not to mention the fact that it exploits the person receiving the charity. Just so someone can get likes and subscribers or, or whatever. I'm not talking about like an authentic like ministry endeavor and you've made a video for your church for people to, to see. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who, you know, they, they take you know, video of themselves walking up to some poor homeless person and then blast it all over social media. And it appears to be, oh, so sweet, but it really is quite cruel. It's born out of a selfish motivation to get likes or you know, subscribers, and it exploits that person. A few years ago, as an example, I saw this video uh, of a church, some mega church. Maybe you've seen this video. They ordered pizza in the middle of service, and when the Domino's delivery gal showed up, they called her up on stage. And the pastor you know, stopped the service and told her to put her hand out, and he slowly counted out a massive tip. And, you know, she's got her hand out like, almost like a beggar, and she's in a Domino's, you know, uniform. And when I saw it, I was furious instantly. Not that it was wrong to give her money. That was good and wonderful. But that, he did it, that they did it so publicly without consideration for her dignity. And it totally exploited her to make their ministry look awesome and cool. And the pastor was totally self-congratulatory. And like, just like as a side note, like, can you see why the world is, at times has a problem with the church, you know? Like, like sometimes we just totally drop the ball, you know? I mean, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6 and 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You want to give a big tip 
to a Domino's pizza driver, fine. Tell one of your elders to take her in a back room and say, hey, this church loves you and cares about you. Here you go. Right? Here's an application point for you, okay? Beware of performing God-serving outward actions that proceed from self-serving inward motives. Beware of performing God-serving outward actions that proceed from self-serving inward motives. Secondly, holiness is not being critical of other people who don't share your scruples. Matthew 7 and 1, Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Notice that it says, with the judgment you pronounce. Because, you know, it's not being judgmental or critical or judgmental to repeat God's judgment on certain sins. That's, that's important for us to make that distinction. If God has said something is evil, it's not judging other people to say that's evil. But it is being judgmental to judge people because they don't sort of live like you live. Or you're critical of them because they don't have your scruples in areas that are maybe gray areas, we could say. I remember years ago in a church I attended, a guy in the church who I was close to had a nice collection of horror movies and decided one day he was deeply convicted about it and threw them all away. And immediately went about judging everyone in the church who had horror movies. And like Jesus is saying, yeah, don't do that. Like, don't do that. Uh, praise the Lord, right? If that is a part of your pursuit of holiness and you feel convicted about that. But don't immediately turn around and judge people who don't have that conviction. So we can make judgments about what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, and we can even make judgments about righteous or unrighteous behavior if God has made that judgment, right? Jesus said, you know a tree by the fruit it bears, right? So in some ways we are fruit inspectors, that's true. But don't get in the habit of judging other people's holiness while being blind to your own faults. That's the key, okay? That's a key takeaway. So living a holy life is always about helping others see God and ourselves drawing close to God. That is the motivation. It is not setting yourself above people as holier than now. It is not creating sort of these categories because when we see people who are unholy and sinners, we know they're rebelling against God, but we want our lives, yes, to sort of exude holiness, but also love that is attractive to draw them close to God. Look at Paul's motivation. This is the verse we read in the beginning. What Paul is motivated by. You are witnesses, and God also. He writes to the Thessalonians, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In other words, Paul wanted to see people 
serve God in the beauty of holiness and knew it was vitally important that he demonstrate it and model it. And that he had, he would give no one any sort of case for them to charge him with wicked behavior. He wanted to live a life that was above reproach for the purpose of those God was calling to himself. As an example, so the things he was preaching about, they could see reflected in his own life. And this is sadly where, you know, there's scar tissue in America over this failure by many people who publicly proclaim righteousness and holiness and don't model it. And I don't need to go into a list, but in my own life, I can think of dozens of big, you know, key figures, Christian leaders whose moral failings made their message to a skeptical world just, you know, not worth listening to. Paul deeply desired to see others live for God. And he felt personally responsible not to be a stumbling block. So here's what, you, here's what is in your power. You cannot save anyone. That is true. Only God can do that. Okay? But what is in your power is not being a stumbling block to others. That is in your power. And Paul pursued that with passion and deep conviction and burden. He pursued holiness and righteousness so that his conduct was blameless before other people. Not because he wanted to set himself apart as better than anyone. He had correctness of conduct and personal relationship with God and other people. And it made his holy living compelling. When you love your neighbor, when you love your coworker, when you love that unbelieving family member, and you are living a life of humble holiness, it is compelling to people. It wasn't a contest for Paul. It wasn't mere moralism, but heartfelt longing and desire to know God and to help others know him. May we also grow into that understanding as well. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we're uh, surprised and a little taken aback by just how full Scripture is with the call to holiness. Your heart's desire that we be obedient to your commands and cultivate holy character. Help us to see what you have commanded us as, Lord, the recipe for our human flourishing, that we might thrive. Not that good things would be kept from us, but that by living a holy and righteous life, we may find the true happiness, the joy of the Lord that you promise in the gospel. We are happier when we're holy. Father, convict our hearts about it this morning. In Christ's name, amen.